Amen. Please be seated. I invite you to take up your copy of God's Word and open once again to the first epistle of John, 1 John chapter 3. This evening we'll be looking at verses 4 through 10, but for context I will begin reading in chapter 2 verse 28 and then we'll read through verse 10. 1 John, beginning in chapter 2, verse 28 through 3, verse 10. This is the word of God. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Thus far, God's holy word, let's pray. Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to equip us for every good work. We pray that you would do so this evening. Please bless it to us, Lord, and speak to us, speak to us from it, so that we may have a clearer understanding of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and of what he calls us to do in love and in faith. Would you pray these things in his name? Amen. I wonder if you have ever heard the phrase, practice makes perfect. I assume that you probably have. It's a very common phrase. Some of you out there might have heard it when you were taking music lessons as you were learning the piano or the guitar or the violin or something like that. Maybe one day at lessons, after a week where you had not practiced as much as you should have, you kind of made an excuse to your teacher, well, I don't know why I I can't play this piece as well as I should. And your teacher says, well, did you practice? And you say, well, no. And she says, well, you know, practice makes perfect. Or maybe you heard this phrase when you're playing sports, 
Your coach has you run a play over and over and over again, and as you're gasping for breath, you ask the coach, why do we have to do this so many times? And your coach says, well, practice makes perfect. It's this idea that if we do things over and over and over again, eventually it becomes ingrained in us. I want to ask you, what happens if you are practicing a piano piece over and over and over again, but every time you practice it, you play one little phrase incorrectly? Or every time you run a play in football, the one guy who should be blocking just completely forgets to do that. You do that over and over and over and over again. Has your practice made perfect or has it made what you're doing perfectly wrong? As you notice from our reading this evening, John talks about practice a great deal in this text. He talks about doing things over and over and over again. Practices which demonstrate uh, where we are spiritually. In this text this evening, John presents to us two different practices, two different spiritual practices, which demonstrate membership in two different spiritual families. Two different spiritual practices which demonstrate membership in two different spiritual practices. And he makes a great distinction between the two of them so that it will be very evident to you, dear believer, One of these practices is something that you should have no part in, while the other is the sovereign work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, and something which, if it is your practice, should bring you great assurance in and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll look at our text this evening in two general headings. You see the outline there in your bulletin. First, in verses 4 through 7, we're going to look at two different practices, two different spiritual patterns, which two different groups of people undertake. And, And these two different practices demonstrate our second point, that there are two different families, as we see in verses 8 through 10. Two different practices, verses 4 through 7, and two different families, verses 8 through 10, meant to illustrate and display to us where we are, whether we are in Christ or outside of him, so that we can examine ourselves, so that we can repent if need be, or that we can rejoice and have great assurance in Christ. With that in mind, let's Go to the word of God here and see how John opens these things up for us by looking first at these two different practices in verses 4 through 7. We read here in verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 
No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Here John demonstrates to us, opens up to us, that there are are two different practices, two different patterns of life. He writes here in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. What does he mean by practicing? We've spoken many times before as we've worked through this book that John often speaks of the pattern of one's life. That when we are self-examining, we need to distinguish between whether the pattern of our life is a certain way or whether uh, it's the other way. Whether our sin is kind of an occasional blip on the screen, as it were, or whether it is a constant practice. That's what John is speaking of here. When he writes that everyone who makes a practice of sinning is practicing lawlessness. He's speaking of this lifestyle, this, this constant uh, walk of a person's life. I think a helpful way to think of this is uh, to think of the way we use practice when we're speaking of a doctor or a lawyer. We say that a doctor practices medicine. We're saying that this person has studied medicine, spent a great deal of their life seeking to acquire the information that it takes for them to be a doctor. Uh, They've kind of internalized all of this information. They have perfected it to an extent, or at least we hope they have. And they have made medicine their occupation. They take everything that they know about medicine and they seek to apply it to uh, bring it to bear in people's life. We call that practicing medicine. Well, that's similar to what John has in mind here when he speaks of practicing sin and practicing lawlessness. He's speaking of people who have made sin a pattern of their life, who internalize it, who delight in their sin even. Who look at their sin and say, this is who I am and what I want to do and nobody can tell me to do any differently. These are people who make a practice of sinning and it's a practice of rebellion because it's lawlessness. So that's just one group of people, those who practice sin. And and then John goes on to explain to us It's a very vivid detail why this is such a bad thing. And we know that sin is wrong. We know that it is a bad thing. But John brings out a couple things here, which I think should really demonstrate to us how bad sin actually is. To show us the great sinfulness of sin, if you will. First, he gives us this definition of sin. He says this sin is lawlessness. What he means by this is that sin is rebellion against God. You know that in the New Testament, there's, there's several different words used for sin. Uh, one word means to miss the mark, as you're an archer shooting at a target and you don't hit the bullseye. 
You, you do not keep God's law perfectly. You're not hitting the bullseye. You're missing the marker. Another word means basically to stray from the path which God has, has called you to walk in. Well, here John says that sin is rebellion against God, is essentially saying God has no authority over me. God may be the king of the world. He may be the great judge, but I don't care. I, I see his law. I read his law. It means nothing to me. These people who are practicing sin, who are practicing lawlessness, are saying that, uh, that line from the famous poem, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, this, of course, is, is utter nonsense, isn't it? We know that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. The, the God of all the earth will do right. The great judge, the great king has given his law, has established it, and does expect men to obey. And so to sin, to be in this act of rebellion is terribly sinful. It's cosmic treason against the living and true God. And another reason why sin is so heinous, John tells us, is because it's completely contrary to Christ's person and work. In verse 2, he, he writes there, excuse me, not verse 2, verse 5, that he appeared, that is Christ appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. John says, sin is heinous because it is enmity with Christ. He writes that Christ came to take it away. The Greek word there could also be translated to destroy it or to kill it. Christ came to, to bear the wrath of God on, on behalf of his people, but he also came to wipe sin out, which is why he doesn't leave us in our sin, which is why he is sanctifying us by his spirit, which is why he one day will glorify us, removing all trace of sin from our life. Sin is rebellion against God, and Christ came to destroy sin. So to sin is to act against the work of Christ. And it's to act against the person of Christ. In Christ, there is no sin. None. He is the perfect, spotless lamb of God. Holy, harmless, and undefiled. He, the one who obeyed God's law perfectly on our behalf. This makes sin a terrible, terrible Thing. And John brings that out for us so that we can see this is a practice that we don't want to have any part of as God's people. We ought not want to practice sin, to live in sin, to walk in sin, to dwell in it. No, it's contrary to our Lord, what he says and what our Savior has, has done. And John knows that, and that's why he moves into reminding us. There's also those who are practicing righteousness because of the person and work of God. Look at verses 6 and 7. John writes there, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. 
So John says here that those who are united to Christ do not keep sinning. That is, they don't make a habitual practice of sin. We must understand that here when he, he says that uh, they do not keep on sinning. And then later, when he says uh, that they do not keep on sinning, we'll open this up a little bit more later. But basically, it's, it's the habitual practice which he's speaking of. And the reason for this is because of our union with Christ. A person cannot be united to, to the thrice holy God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have your, your delight and joy in God and then delight in things which are contrary to God's character and will, can you? That makes no sense. If you delight in God, then you will delight in the things of God. That does not mean that because of the remnant of sin within us that we do not uh, very often say, well, that looks good and fall into sin. But that isn't the thing we delight in as Christian people, is it? I think of your own life. When you, when you sin against God, do you say, well, that was nice. I want to do that again. Or does the spirit convict you? And you think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I've sinned. I've done something I, I shouldn't have done. Lord, please forgive me. That is the pattern. That is the practice of the Christian. John reminds us that we must not be deceived about this. Gnostic heretics, as we've spoken about before, were promoting lawless lifestyles. They were the ones saying sin isn't a big deal. Don't worry about it. Your mortal body, that's, that's a bad thing anyway, and it's all going to pass away. Don't worry, spirit's all that's good. You don't have to worry about sin. That's just a flesh thing, and flesh doesn't matter at all. This is similar to what many modern people say. Young people, you will probably experience this at some point in your life. Someone will come up to you and say, well, why, why would you live in obedience to God? That doesn't sound like any fun. No, you can, you can do that religion thing later. No, enjoy yourself now while you're young. Again, this is, this is utter foolishness. And, but many people say this. And when we say that there is such a thing as sin, and we shouldn't partake in it, the response is, well, you're just old-fashioned, or perhaps you're a bigot. They say things like, you're judgmental. Don't judge me. And oftentimes, that can have an effect on us. And we think, well, maybe, maybe I am being judgmental. Maybe sin isn't that big of a deal. But John reminds us this evening that it is. It is a big deal. It's contrary to God's character and will. And we should not be deceived by these things. Hold fast to what God has taught us in his word. And practice righteousness. He encourages us as well in the practice of righteousness by reminding us that whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he, that is Christ, is righteous. You see, only someone who has been made righteous can really practice righteousness. And dear Christian, everyone who believes 
on the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who places their faith in him is given the righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to us, placed in our account. And so we really are, in God's sight, righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. And from that flows the righteousness uh, which we practice. And so we are righteous because of Christ. And we can practice righteousness because of Christ, even as he is righteousness. We've been given the righteousness of Christ. We've died to sin. We've been raised together with Christ. And we are therefore enabled to live righteously to God because of the work of our Savior. And we will. And this will be the general practice of our life. This is how John distinguishes two different groups of people by setting forth their practices, the practice of rebellion and the practice of righteousness. And then he continues to show us that these practices demonstrate our membership in two different families. Again, by drawing a stark contrast between the two in verses 8 through 10. There in 8 through 10, we read, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So John tells us here, the one of the families is the family of the devil. He says the sin practitioners are of the devil. They are children of the devil. They have Satan as their father. You remember this sharp rebuke of Christ in in John chapter 8 where he tells the Pharisees, no, you're not sons of Abraham. You're really sons of Satan because you are acting against God. You're not acting righteously. You, You think you are. You think you're obeying God, but your heart condition is all wrong. These practitioners of sin are of the devil because they have Satan as their slave master. They might think in the practice of sin that there is pleasure. You might think in, in the practice of sinning there is joy. But the devil is not a kind and loving father. He's a cruel and harsh slave master who seeks to destroy people. He does not seek their good. So those who practice sin are of the devil. John says also that reason for this is because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The devil is the original sinner. The first to rebel against God. The first to say, no, I am the master of my fate. I want to do what I want to do. I'm not going to bow to God. It's quite astounding considering that he was in the very presence of God as as one of the angels. 
We see then how deceptive and how destructive sin is, isn't it? That the devil, who, the one who's the original sinner, could fall, who did fall, who rebelled against God, and, and everyone who practices sin follows in that same pattern and acts like the devil in that way. John reminds us, after telling us sin practitioners are children of the devil, that the Lord Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. I think John is thinking back to Genesis chapter 3 where God makes that first promise of the gospel. That Satan the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of Adam and Eve and yet that seed would crush his head. The Lord Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to crush the serpent's head. To kill him. Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus, came to slay the dragon and rescue his people. He didn't come to merely chase the dragon away or to tell it to leave people alone. He came to destroy him and to kill him. And this ought to remind us of, of another, a number of things. Excuse me. First is this is another reminder of the great sinfulness of sin. That Christ came to destroy the devil and his works. To leave no remnant. No vestiges. Not even a small little bit of sin in this world. Christ came to destroy sin. Because it is so sinful. But this is also a great reminder to us of the mercy and the grace of God, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus Christ came to crush the serpent's head and, and save his people. To destroy sin in, in their life. To rescue them from it. To purify them from it. It's a reminder of the great mercy and grace of God. Because... It's a promise, or God promises us that he will crush Satan under our feet. The Lord Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Paul says in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Meaning that Christ enables his people by his spirit to live lives holy and acceptable to God. And we, as it were, tread Satan under our feet as we live lives of obedience to our Savior. Christ crushed his head and, and now as the serpent lies there broken in the dust, Christ's people in following after him trample him to his great shame and Christ's great glory. This is a reminder to us of the mercy and grace of God in our salvation. It's also a warning though. It's a warning that God does not take sin lightly. The Lord is of purer eyes than to see evil. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. They will be destroyed completely and utterly. Which means that if you, and 
practicing sin and being a child of the devil, continue to live your life in that way, you are destroyed along with the father of lies. Of course, I trust and hope better things of all of you, but this is a warning. The Lord God does not take sin lightly. So with this in mind, you're also urged to flee to Christ, to take refuge in him, to have him as your savior, the one who loved you and and gave himself up for you. John mentions this family of the devil, the sons of the devil, but he also reminds us the children of God and and their practice, which demonstrates that they are children of God. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So we see the children of God do not practice sin and cannot keep sinning. And perhaps this raises some questions in your mind. What does he mean we cannot keep sinning? Because last time I checked, I sin. In fact, we confess often, every week. When we meet together each Lord's Day, we have confession. In the pastoral prayer, we, we very often confess we've sinned in thought, word, and deed. What does John mean we can't keep sinning? Didn't he say in chapter 1 that if we say we have no sin, we're liars? Well, yes. John's point here is that the Christian, though he may and does sin, He doesn't tolerate it in his life. He doesn't take that sin in an embrace and say, yes, this is is mine. I like this. I'm going to keep it. He doesn't say that I'm not going to give it up, even though God says I must. No, the, the Christian sees his sin as heinous and vile. He wants to be rid of it all. Don't you want to be rid of your sin? Every time you you sin and and you realize it and you're repenting to God, isn't one of the thoughts which which comes into your mind, Lord, I just want want to be done with this. I don't want to sin anymore. Lord, please hasten the day of Christ's return or... Take me to yourself and and glorify me so I don't have sin in my life anymore. It hampers me from serving you. It, It impedes me from worshiping you. Father, please sanctify me. Purify me. Help me not to sin. I I hate it and I don't want to do it anymore. John's point here in saying that Christians don't make a practice of sinning, they don't keep on sinning, is, is basically. Him saying that the Christian in their sin is not like Gollum and the ring in the Lord of the Rings. Remember the Gollum, though the ring was torturous to him, it was his precious. He held on to it. He wanted it. He wouldn't let go of it. Though it was destroying him, he wouldn't give it up. The Christian is nothing like that. When it comes to their sin. Sin is not precious. To us. No it is something which God hates. And something which which we ought to hate. 
Something which we ought to ask God to give us a holy hatred for so that we may turn away from it and endeavor after new obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit. And we ought to do that because that is the very work of the spirit which John talks about here. Why is it that the Christian cannot keep sinning? Why is it that he does not practice sin? Well, it's simply the work of the Spirit. Here in verse 9, John writes that God's seed abides in him, that is the Christian, and he has been born of God. These are the reasons. This speaks to us of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes us. He indwells us. He does not allow us to be overcome by sin or to to cling to it and hold to it. But he reminds us of God's law. He reminds us of, of the great love which Christ has for us. And he says, turn away. Turn away from these sins and turn to Christ. He is the spirit of adoption who points us to our Heavenly Father, who forgives us for Christ's sake. He's the Spirit who has made us new creations in Christ Jesus. This change is a permanent change, which keeps us from practicing sin and and abiding in it and, and keeping on in it. The Spirit's work does not flip-flop back and forth. Imagine you take a bucket of water and put it outside on a freezing day. It turns to ice. It's changed. And then you bring it inside and you set it on your kitchen table and a little while later, what happens? It's changed back to water. That's not the way it works when the Holy Spirit changes a man. You don't go from one thing and then back to another thing. You don't go from dead in your trespasses and sins to alive in Christ to all of a sudden back dead in your trespasses and sins. The Spirit changes a man so completely, so thoroughly, that he's never the same again. The Spirit is the one who, who takes that heart of stone which you once had. He turns it into a heart of flesh. It's something completely different. That work of the Spirit is irreversible. And so the Spirit will continue working in the life of a believer to point them to Christ and to keep them from continuing in sin, from practicing sin, to make them more and more and more like Christ. That is why we cannot cling to and delight in our sin. Because the Spirit has given us a different disposition and this is all thanks to the grace and the mercy of God in Christ. John concludes this section in verse 10 by saying that the practice of our lives is the evidence of our state. He writes there, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God 
nor is the one who does not love his brother. The practitioner of sin and lawlessness is evidently not a child of God. The practitioner of righteousness whose life is being shaped and changed and molded by the Holy Spirit is evidenced to be a child of God. John says it's clear. And because it's clear, we ought to examine ourselves. So I ask you, what is the practice of your life? What is the habit of your existence? Where do you take delight? Is it in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it in the Heavenly Father, the Triune God? Or is your delight in sin? Do you say, well, I've heard in the Bible that God doesn't want me to do these certain things, but those certain things are kind of fun, and I think I'd rather do those things. This is true of you. Dear friend, I encourage you to cry out to God right now. We, we've seen how terrible this, this state is. This lawlessness, this rebellion against God, which, which demonstrates a, a, a family, a status, which will be destroyed if you find yourself part of that family, then cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him to change you by his Holy Spirit. Ask him to take you from that, that family of death and destruction and bring you into the family of the true and living God. The Lord Jesus Christ does such marvelous things. The Lord Jesus Christ loves to save those who need saving. He came to destroy sin in the works of the devil. He came to do that, to rescue his people, to save them. If you cry out to him and ask him to save you, he's a kind and merciful God and will delight to do it. What if, however... As you examine your life, you say, well, I am certainly not perfect, and I do sin very often, but by God's grace, I don't think the pattern of my life is sin. I see a change in my life. It's not as much of a change as I would like, but I do see a change. Rejoice. Give thanks, dear saint. That is wonderful evidence of your status as a child of God. But don't sit back and say, well, I guess I don't have to do anything else. No, ask the Lord to continue to pour his grace out upon you so that you can continue to love and obey him. Ask him to, to grow you in your love for him and your desire for obedience and ask him to give you a holy hatred of sin so that you can put it to death 
in your life. Ask him to continue to make it evident that he is your heavenly father so that you will be encouraged, energized, motivated to continue to serve him. And again, it's my great joy to tell you that the Lord answers those prayers. He desires for his people to be a holy people. And he will bring that to pass. He will do that. He will, by his spirit, continue to conform you to the image of Christ, to grow you in holiness, to give you a hatred for sin and a love for God that demonstrates to you and to those around you, you are his child so that you may glorify and honor him in your life. Let's pray. Our great and glorious Lord, we, we thank you for your mercy and kindness that you, though you could have judged us all as guilty and condemned us all, yet were pleased to save a great host of men, women, and children. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to take away sins and you came to destroy the work of the devil. We thank you that you won salvation for all of your people by living a perfect and holy life and dying on the cross on our behalf and bearing the wrath of God then raising from the dead three days later for our justification to prove and seal to us this promise of salvation in the Son of God. Help us, O Lord, to make a practice of righteousness. Work in us by your Spirit, we ask, so that we will be holy people unto you, set apart, obeying your word, so we can honor and glorify you. Lord, we cannot do this apart from your grace, and so we ask that you would pour your grace upon us in great measure so that we can live as your people, glorifying and honoring you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.